Hello and welcome. My name is Cassie Prolongo, and I'm a science communicator at the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute. Today I'm interviewing Ryan Scott, who's a biological research scientist at NASA Ames. So hi, Ryan. Hello, Cassie. How are you? Good, thank you. Uh, I thought we could maybe start with you explaining a little bit about what you do at Ames, because I was aware of the fact that you wear potentially many hats. And I'm just curious to know what sort of things do you do under your role or roles? Currently, I'm a scientist with the biorepository. It's called the NASA Biological Institutional Scientific Collection. And we work to get biospecimens that are from spaceflight missions more shared with the research community so that we can really maximize the science return from those surplus biospecimens. So these are it could be, for example, tissues from mice, for example, that might have flown on the ISS. And so if the original research from that mission on the ISS was all about the bone, well, what about the extra spleen or the liver? And so we, we, we store those tissues and make them available for the science community. And then, yeah, the other hat is a, has to do with data. So we collect physiological data also from these various experiments from space biology and human research program. And we make those data available for the scientists for data reuse. Sort of the exciting new stuff is more having to do with machine learning, different knowledge graphs, artificial intelligence types approaches to get data reused. So I know it's a lot to sort of put together under one, but it's sort of an exciting future for the next decade coming up. And we'll get into why that's so exciting um, in a little bit. Why is it important for research repositories, science research repositories, why is that important for having this open science across for scientists or researchers to use? There's actually several different reasons that, especially that open science and open data is so important for science, is it helps ensure ensure confidence in the results because it's it should be transparent and it helps reproducibility so that if a study needs to be redone for some example, you can go back to the original example and clarify the methods, clarify how the data was collected so that everything is transparent. I mean, that's sort of the nuts and bolts of the purpose of science is to have clarity and transparency and methods. And plus this data is so extremely valuable that has flown to the ISS or wherever in space that we really want to have sort of a citizen science approach and democratize science so that not just a handful of tens and 20 researchers, but hundreds, if not thousands of researchers, even like students, high school students, uh, have a chance to look at the data and come up with their own new approaches and hypotheses and think about all that. Do you think that this is the way that science is heading? I like the, the, what you use, democratization of science, citizen science work. I mean, certainly there's still a lot of paywalls under uh, research papers, but do you do you think that this is the way things are heading, having open science? I really do think that developing platforms like mm. like NASA Gene Lab, I think, well, it's a good example. And I think NASA Gene Lab has really helped pave the way as an example. I've been working closely with them for a couple of years on what can be done towards data democratization and open science. National Academies every decade uh, puts together a decadal survey, which sort of outlines the priorities for the next decade for NASA science to follow. And in 2011, they suggested that informatics and open science platforms should be developed 
to support systems biology approaches for science discovery. And thus in 2014, 2015, NASA Gene Lab was born as an open, open data, open archive for uh, biological data. So it shows mostly molecular data. So it's transcriptomics, genomics, metabolomics, all the different hierarchies of the sort of within the cell, outside the cell, how cells communicate, the different layers of evidence on a molecular level um, that can be looked at in really new bioinformatic approaches. So the omics, there's a lot of omics in that. A lot of omics, <laughs> agreed. I want to talk a little bit about you and your science journey. I mean, take me back a bit. Like, what were you like as a kid? Were you always scientifically minded? Did you want to go into science work or was it sort of a, a natural progression? So I grew up in the, my dad was in the Air Force and my granddad was in the Air Force as well. Growing up, astronauts were just always the go-to hero. Um, I did have an interest in looking at the stars and think about the planets when I was a kid. And I even have some posters from when I was a kid still around. But as I got a little older, I, I never really got deep into science until I got to college. You know, I was really into social activism and especially I got into really deeply into Afrofuturism and funk as a music. Like thinking about George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic, definitely Star Trek influence but also different authors like Octavia Butler, different artists like Herbie Hancock and George Clinton, thinking about Afrofuturistic freedom futures, right? And at this point, I really wasn't into science. And then all of a sudden I got to college and I was an exercise physiology undergrad and then grad school. I remember it was at San Jose State. Uh, someone from NASA gave a talk at San Jose State the talk was so incredibly over my head, it, it sort of made my head spin. It was about synthetic biology, thinking about 100 years in the future, how there could be machine, uh, spacecraft that are part biological, part mechanical. And I just thought it was so absurd to even think that far ahead. I was like, even if I can even think about touching that, how cool, cool would that be? So luckily, I was at, at that point grad school, and I was an anatomist teaching anatomy and going to grad school, I had to take an environmental physiology course. And so I spent four months after that NASA talk at San Jose State, spent four months, you know, writing a literature review on vision changes, how astronauts are coming back with these, the back of their eyeball becomes sort of flattened and there's issues with the optic nerve and there's issues with the retina and all this stuff. And then after I wrote that paper <laughs> for a class, I talked to my mentor and I said, hey, do you think that uh, scientists from NASA would be interested in this. He's like, well, why would you, why would you want to con contact him? So, well, I want to share the paper that he inspired me because I read that to cable survey, and this was 2013, 2014. Oh yeah, I contacted him. I'm not sure if he read it because it was a big, nasty, 60-page paper. <laughs> but um, he did say, well, thanks for your enthusiasm, Ryan. You know, there's a there's a summer series that we regularly put on. You should follow us on YouTube. And I was like. You know, I was like, well, maybe I could attend, you know, being yeah. sort of the upstart that I am. Maybe I could attend <laughs> one of those. And I saw there was a session on bone and I was an anatomist and I know bone extremely well. And so I attended that session and then, long story compressed, though, that session that uh, that scientist, Josh Alwood, became my my PI for my grad work. They became my grad study was working with that lab. And that, but that took a whole year. The first meeting, I was like, hey, so Dr. Alwood, you know that I'm a, I'm a grad student. 
and I'd sort of like to work in your lab so I can do my research with you. And he's like, whoa, 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 why, why would I, what, what, what would you bring to the table? Like, what's your, and I was like, he's like, well, why don't you come back in a month with some hypotheses and a proposal? And so I just remember that December over Christmas, New Year's, I did nothing but study up on material science and space flight and got deep into some engineering stuff that I wasn't familiar with. And I brought back this huge multi, not multi, I, the project would have cost half a million dollars to do. Instead, he's like, he's like well, this, he, he was obviously impressed. He's like, wow, okay. Well, I don't have that money, but I'll tell you what, <laughs> I do have some freezer, some bones in the freezer from a previous study. Why don't you think about those bones specifically come back in another month? And that eventually became my grad thesis was that proposal after that. It's a little bit of a non-traditional way. I didn't really have a technical, it was a volunteer thing that became an internship. Yeah, who would have thought that? And I sort of geeked out on this because of my Afrofuturism passion yeah. and social justice sort of thought about freedom and space. I would have never thought, at, and not in a million years, that I would have, like I used to say, like my 10-year-old self is probably doing backflips that I'm even connected to NASA at all, let alone working there. So I hope you didn't give up your uh, Afrofuturism thing and you're still doing art or at least being involved in it somehow. Yeah, I've been an assistant DJ in Berkeley. It's on KPFA. It's a radio show called The History of Funk. And I've been doing that for 21 years off and on as wow. the assistant DJ. I mean, obviously with COVID life, things are tough, but I've seen Parliament Funkadelic probably 75 times or something. It's hard to put a number on. So yeah, it's still, it's still a passion. That's good. And see, you're a perfect uh, person that my whole thing, I always talk about the emergence or merging of like art and science. And somehow that makes us more creative in, in both sort of fields, and especially with people who are more um, looking at like, you know, science things. So having that creativity, maybe that helps to inspire some of your own work in your day to day life. I was thinking yeah. of Brian May. You know how he's you know, very, uh, yes. he's got that creativity being a guitarist with Queen, but then he's also an astrophysicist. It's like <laughs> there's something about that creativity that maybe inspires them on both sides. Well, you touched a little bit about this, talking about astronauts and space and sort of the, the biological aspect when they're in space. And you talked a little bit about AI, machine learning, data science, modeling, space flight biology in particular. Um, that's that's a pretty large mouthful. So my question is, if we're going to be like this multi-planetary species or even just do like deep space exploration, we have to do like the science work. Like we have to figure out how our biology can pass like the stress tests. And it's hard to do right now because our lab in the sky is just the International Space Station. So why is it important to have data science modeling for space biology? In general, you can sort of think of spaceflight and deep space missions especially as you can reduce it to a number of specific hazards. The altered gravity slash microgravity, what gen most people generally tend to think of when they think about spaceflight is the microgravity slash altered gravity impacts. Then then next in line, tends to, people tend to think understand that radiation, either coming from the sun or coming from outside our own solar system, uh, like galactic cosmic rays, are probably the next hazard that needs to be thought about. But there are three more deep space hazards that ought to be considered. 
One is just the general confinement, being in a small space for months upon months, if not years at a time, and what that can have on psychological and fitness and different stress disturbances and effects. And then the fourth one is probably just having a closed environment itself tends to lead to greater infections and other different Mm. uh, molecular and hostile impacts on the body. And the, the fifth hazard that I think about is the question of the distance itself from Earth, because the farther and farther we get away from, from Earth itself, there's going to be more and more limited healthcare resources and support available to maintain health, right? You're not going to have the same stock of medicine. You're not going to have the same, necessarily the same type of food accessibility that you would have, uh, let alone if there's an emergency health issue, if you get injured or if there's a serious medical issue, you know, having flight surgeons on the ground are no longer an option. You know, I think what from the ISS, the ground, it's only a matter of hours. Like if, if, if maybe just a couple to few hours, if I remember correctly, to get from the ISS to ground, if there's a serious medical emergency, but on your way to Mars, you're several months away. There's of course the time delay with communication. So I think the role of data science and different tools, multi-monitoring hopefully being tools that are somewhat autonomous that doesn't require a lot because you know astronauts are going to be busy up there they're going to actually be paying attention they're going to want free time as well they don't they're not going to want to have to be working at the same pace uh, is sort of my view so having as many autonomous self-reliant health support systems and personalized systems and then also integrating monitoring systems with the supporting the flight medical doctor and then having all these different data streams intersect in a streamless, in a seamless way, I think is going to be really critical to eventually developing. Besides all the basic research that we're going to have to do, which is sort of where we're at at the moment of just building the evidence base so that we can understand the types of predictions that we we likely would will be seeing on a deep space mission. That's a really good answer, actually. So in that regards, is there something interesting that you've been working on that's sort of related to this concept or any other kind of cool discoveries or something that was unexpected um, that's happened in recent times for you? Well, it also sort of ties back to that open data, open science question. We struck up a collaboration between some colleagues at NASA Ames and UC San Francisco with some researchers in their computational health sciences group, they have a tool, uh, which is a, it's a machine learning, but also a, what's called a knowledge graph. And like knowledge graphs are, you got these nodes, these little, like, you know, central nodes, and then you have edges, these little lines between the nodes. You can think of like little squares and then lines connecting the squares of levels of evidence. And so it's this really interesting tool that they developed called SPOKE. It stands for uh, Scalable Precision Medicine Oriented Knowledge Engine. We were really excited about this collaboration because we took six data sets from GeneLab, and these were from mice. So they weren't in humans, but they were in mice because it's an open data and it's a model organism that's mammalian. And we took these six different data sets that were from different missions, even different tissues. I think it was spleen, thymus, and liver. Uh, we did a, and this is simply looking just at the, the gene expression, the transcriptomics, and based on combining the data sets that we had from spaceflight data 
with their tool, which was structured in a way that the confounding issues between the spaceflight missions, because it was in this knowledge graph structure, it wasn't an issue. And so, um, and we found that through this this collaboration and very initial paper, the spoke system and the UCSF team, their system predicted that those animals were experiencing um, spaceflight sickness, which is sort of like nausea, that they were having changes in their taste receptor complex, issues with blood ve- uh, blood vessel regulation, and issues with their sympathetic nervous system. All are, are, are known. And that was, it was this really interesting surprise to us that these was this was the outcome of this paper and this collaboration was because all six of these, well, five or six of these outcomes were predicted are known spaceflight drivers. So it was a really interesting finding sort of to kick off this collaboration. And we hope that this can then lead to next decade of how do we get this data into new paradigms and new approaches so that we can can help predict health outcomes and adverse outcomes in space and how we can help predict the risk beforehand so that we can develop countermeasures to counteract them. Is that like personalized medicine, so to speak, for each of the individual astronauts? This type of approach, if it were obviously human data, you know, could be tailored for personalized medicine. Well, it's like you could all you could think of it as like a few P's, personalized, precision and preventative uh, mm. medicine, right? Because how the system is set up would take, you know, as everyone responds differently to environmental toxins and, you know, just your genetic background is going to be different. You know, your lifestyle, if you're, you do exercise a lot, how, you know, what's your diet like? So what we all, everyone has very specific backgrounds biologically. What this system will do will sort of take all of those different measures and specific geno- uh, genomic-based data into account uh, when making these predictions. So it sounds like that NASA scientists who did the talk at San Jose State helped to change the trajectory of the maybe tr- the direction that you were going in, or maybe helped to get it started a little bit more quickly. What what sort of advice would you give to people who are maybe considering doing something either at, at like NASA or they don't know if like they can do science? Maybe they are more creative minded, like what you were talking about before. And they're like, I don't know if I can do science. What sort of things would you want to say to them? So I also had, it's like, I was a strength coach for a while. I played rugby. I even have a history being a coal miner and I worked in a slaughterhouse. You never know where you might end up, but you need to put yourself out there and show I, I always think enthusiasm is a key. Enthusiasm is just so crucial to demonstrate and, that sort of passion, as long as that comes through and you're a prodigious reader. If you've clearly read literature, if you're familiar with history, if you're familiar with sort of the state of knowledge and all those things can shine through to be that teachers or people you work with or people that fund your science. And because I definitely never saw, uh, saw myself growing up that I'd probably become a scientist and it wasn't until considerably late yeah, there's going to be there's some hard work involved, definitely, and some basics and fundamentals take a while to to conquer. But but through that, demonstrating that enthusiastic passion, I think, is key aspect. Cool. I really appreciate the fact that you said to be a, a prodigious reader because I'm an English major and you're the first scientist who said you should be a reader. Usually it's like, take all the computer science classes that you can and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, but I think it's important to also 
have an understanding of like the human human element too. So I, I greatly appreciate that. Thank you. It's oftentimes overlooked, I think, is it also just makes people more interesting and more pleasant to work with and collaborate with. And, you know, it's it's very easy when you get into science eventually to know who's easy to work with and you want to work with versus someone that might not have the same social understanding and comfortability to work with a broad array of individuals. And that comes from having a strong a strong understanding of humanity in which you get through broad reading, broad experiences. We forget oftentimes that the most successful missions or projects, even though the science work is very important and everything, but they're underneath all of it, it's led by humans. Like we are all the ones who are pushing this. And if you don't have a coherent, cohesive group who's working together, you're not going to have successful missions or projects. Very much the same like what you're talking about, the Gene Lab and how that's open source and it's collaborative and it's science work, but people put that together. I love that. Thank you. That was really that was really a good point. You sort of I kind of feel like I know the answer this to this. I, I always like to ask this as sort of my last question. <laughs> I kind of feel like I know the answer, but let's I'm curious to see if you'll change it. If you weren't a biological research scientist today, what do you think you would be doing if you weren't working at NASA Ames? So one would probably be, I'd be teaching probably human anatomy. I just had a real passion. Over the course of like several years, I taught like just under a couple thousand students, most of whom went on to become nursing students, but also other professions. And I just found that so incredibly socially valuable especially with the COVID world. I think about all those students that I had that are, who are nurses now that have been just working through some extreme circumstances and lack of a healthcare system. And I, I do like to think back that I had an impact on getting them passionately into their field and also having empathy. I remember that being a big deal, especially when we dealt with like cadavers, right? I, I tried to help instill in all my students the concept of empathy to be socially conscious of others and to really try to just exude kindness and probably that i'd probably also still be playing rugby <laughs> just having more wow. extra free time it would be fun to still be playing rugby but it's it's tough to do for your whole life so did you go into human anatomy like as a potential like sports kinesiology? Yeah, kinesiology, yeah. that was definitely part of it initially I mean, I have friends that, that play play rugby well into their 50s and 60s, and it's I, maybe someday I'll have a little bit more time. I can get back into just playing it, having – plus it's such an international sport. You get to – like my sweatshirt right now is Kenya, and I, I think that was only because at one of the tournaments there's a bunch of Kenyans, and you get to meet people playing the sport around the world, be that Fiji or – Japan or Kenya or France or Argentina, Canada, you don't quite get that in a lot of quote unquote American sports, that international sense. That's amazing. And at rugby, yeah, you're not wearing any protection. Just think of American football. So that's, that's hardcore. I'm, I'm really impressed by that. Yeah, it's actually one of my favorite accomplishments from undergrad at Cal State Monterey. I was the president of the club and I got the college to build them their own rugby field. That was probably one of my proudest accomplishments from undergrad was uh, championing that effort to get enough interest in the community to get the college to build that build that nice field for the squad. 
or and the women's squad, which actually became way better than the men's squad and better organized. And they had like such good stuff. The women's team is great. That reminds me, I need to go give them a contribution of some sort and talk to them. I love it. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Prove to me, in my opinion, that our scientists at Ames are so well-rounded. They're not just, they're very multidimensional. They're not people just coming in as like science geeks, although we are very much science geeks. There's just so many different layers and aspects to people and the different things that we enjoy. So thank you, Ryan, for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Cassie. Just to end, the, I think the space flight can be an aspirational pursuit that can help inspire millions of people. You know, thinking about space and the moon and the stars has inspired humanity our whole existence, and it still does. And it has such a return on investment technologically, but also ins- inspirationally that it's, it's pretty exciting. And I think we're living in the, in the very beginnings of a serious golden age uh, that'll... Yeah. So it's very exciting. Thank you.